morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Daybreak Crypto. Uh, all right, Dylan, let's get right into it. Uh, I brought an article today about rug pulls. For those who may be unfamiliar, rug pulls are effectively a cryptocurrency scam. Um, the long and the short of it is that DeFi platforms will uh, list their own tokens and investors will purchase those tokens in hopes of the price increase and to supply liquidity to those projects on decentralized exchanges. Liquidity that's provided is often in the tokens of whatever blockchain that project is built on. So it could be Ethereum or it could be SBL tokens for Solana, uh, which can run into the millions of dollars. Uh, the rug pull comes in when the project is live for a little while. And then the liquidity pool, which is worth millions of dollars, uh, is just taken away. This is where the scammer strikes and they pull all this liquidity out of the decentralized exchange, pocket it all, and disappear. And the rug pull is officially complete, leaving the investors empty-handed. Um, so this year alone, um, these scams have increased in frequency and their impact. Um, they accounted for 37% of all scam revenue this year, as opposed to 1% last year. The total value was nearly $3 billion. Um, so, Dylan, have you, I, I'm just wondering, have you, what's your experience like with these kinds of scams? Have you ever been victim to one? And uh, also, how do you typically go about uh, trying to avoid investing in something that might be susceptible to something like this. Yeah. I've, I've been rug pulled before, but it was my own fault. So I had been scouring for new contracts that were getting launched on a minute by minute basis through some feeds, looking for something that, that looked like it could be attractive or something like that, you know, very heavy on the speculative side of things. And it was for a contract called go swap. They named the token as the same name as a legitimate project. And so I, I, uh, I didn't notice that it was the wrong contract being launched, but because it had like $100,000 worth of liquidity put into it, I, I just was like, oh, this must be the one. Because a lot of the times these contracts would launch and somebody would launch their token with like $100 or $1,000 worth of liquidity. But then when you see the big ones come up, you're like, oh, maybe this is the real one. So I lost a little bit of cash. It wasn't much. It was like a lottery t lottery ticket size of play, but it did feel, I was like, oh, wow, that was stupid. Um, so immediately you put the money in and then you're on PancakeSwap or Uniswap or somewhere. And then all of a sudden you realize the liquidity has gone. I can't actually sell my position and take any profit. So it is a pretty shitty feeling, but it happens. And I, I had a couple questions about this article because I did, it wasn't clear to me how chain analysis was calculating the, the dollar amount of the loss. Like, did they, did they assume the dollar amount of the tokens at the time of the rug pull? Or did they, did they say, oh, there's, there's 10 Ethereum from, from May of 2020 that got rug pulled, and here's what that would, 10 Ethereum would be worth today? Like, I would really love to see a little bit more details on how they calculated that. Did you come across specifics on, on this calculation? Because I think that that could have a huge impact. No, the, 
it's via chain analysis and I don't really know much about that specific uh, company or protocol. So, uh, yeah. so chain analysis, yeah. they, they do a ton of stuff. They're, they're very well funded. They do a lot for tax purposes. I think they work with, I believe as an intermediary between IRS and a bunch of exchanges, but they do a, a ton of different stuff for auditing and so I, it's, it's a little weird to me why they even did this report. Um, I'm trying to figure out their incentive, but in any event, mm-hmm. I mean, these headlines are crazy, but of course the media is just going to focus on, oh yeah, crypto's full of scams. All the traditional finance people are going to be like, see, I told you, but they, I mean, hey, nobody in this ecosystem is crying, asking for a handout to, you know, a bailout to try to be rectified. So I would just say it's a little bit different than how the Wall Street banks act when shit hits the fan. So that's my view on this. But yeah, well, so I guess I'd have one or two points. I Even if you take away the dollar amount, because maybe that is subject to uh, certain calculation, uh, the frequency seems to be going up. And I don't get in the business of trying to predict the future too much, but I would guess that you would see this become more frequent. Uh, Maybe not this exact scam, but scams in general, because for a scammer, this is a very simple cost-benefit analysis. Your cost is your risk. And without any regulation with teeth, the risk doesn't change too much. Uh, The benefit is just going up as the value of cryptocurrencies across the board continue to rise and appreciate there's just going to be more reward for pulling something like this off so i gun to my head i see this as becoming scams generally as becoming more frequent as the aggregate value of cryptocurrencies rise and the thing is you brought up traditional finance uh i mentioned a few times i work for a pretty sizable bank uh scams scammers are uh, scams exist everywhere in traditional finance and they constantly target people they constantly evolve uh it's the same thing it's a risk reward trade-off so um for for people in this space scammers will always be around as the value goes up i would guess there'd be more of them they they're going to change their tactics just like they do everywhere else um so one yeah. thing you can keep an eye on I'm, go, go ahead well, I was, I- yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's super easy to run a scam in this ecosystem because all you need is a really flashy website and some buzzwords on NFTs and APYs of 2,000 million percent. And for the maybe less sophisticated retail user who doesn't know much, I, I don't know. There's there's really easy way to scam stupid people in in crypto. So you have to, it's buyer beware. And you can't get caught up by buzzwords and you have to do, I mean, if you're going to invest sizable money, you have to talk to the team. You have to understand a little bit more. So it's not like you can't just chase everything you see. And if you're going to do that, you have to size appropriately is is you, that's how I would approach it. But I mean, there's real projects being built in the space. And so there's still a lot of alpha to be earned if you're, if you're willing to do the work. Yeah. All right. Well, well, let's move on. I do just want to throw out there, we're short on time. Um, 
liquidity locking for anyone who's wondering how to avoid rug pulls. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing to brush up on liquidity locking. It can prevent or at least minimize risk of rug pulls. I'll leave uh, all of you to do your own work, or maybe we'll talk about that another day. But for now, let's move on. Uh, you brought an article on uh, big data. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, so this was an opinion type of article from Wired where they talked about just how even though big data may not know your name, it's going to know everything else. So this article is about how even if in these huge data sets, data brokers are distributing what they call de-identified data sets. But in reality, because of all the metadata and the, the different types of data that they're aggregating, you can actually back into a lot of information on the, the individuals that the data is being scraped on. I really love that Ruben's here because this article reminds me a lot of some startup work that we've done in the past. So they mentioned this, this uh, example about in 2006, AOL apparently published a collection of 650,000 users, 20 million different web searches with names replaced by random numbers. And the New York Times was able to actually figure out, like they were able to link the searches to specific people just because of all the different ways they could back into certain attributes on the individuals. And so it's this ironic notion that the data brokers are claiming the data is anonymized, but their entire business model actually rests on the premise that they can highly and so highly selectively track and understand and micro-target individual people. So these data sets are, are extremely valuable for anyone trying to target users or potential customers for their, for their apps, for their companies. And the, the whole idea is, is this, when they talk the narrative, when the brokers are talking this narrative that the, the data is anonymous, it, it really is not anonymous. I mean, they're, they're able to, to back into everything and piece it all together very, very succinctly. Jake, this is something that we've been talking about in our, our data series. I wanted to just put this in front of you because it was highly relevant about data sharing, data scraping, and how these brokers make their money off of it with very little value being accrued to the the generators of the data, AKA you and me. Mm -hmm. So first thought is, is this reminds me of that game, guess who that board game where, you know, you're each looking at like 20 pop-up pictures and you have to take turns guessing attributes about the person in question you're trying to find. And it's just inevitable that with enough data points, you're going to find exactly who you're talking about. But this also reminds me of a point that someone on our, that that data series talked about which is that like well i don't even care and i've heard this before from other people which is that well i have nothing to hide and you know they, they already know everything about me and it's this defeatist mentality that look the, the information is out there we lost the data privacy war and there's just nothing to be done and i don't want to speak for you but i, I think you and i feel similar that that's just that's just not the right way to go about this. Uh, th this doesn't have to be a lost war. Um, you know, there, there, first of all, there's a temporal aspect of data. You know, the longer you go with 
adequate privacy measures, uh, the more privacy you can claw back. And maybe, maybe no, maybe you can never be a fully private, uh, anonymous person. Maybe for a lot of us, the tea has been spilled too much, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't make an attempt to at least build a new, better system that takes care of our privacy so that this isn't the case, that, that we can't find a place to have a basic human right to privacy anywhere. And uh, I don't know what the answer is. I, I think um, part of it is just making it costly in some way, whether that's, um, I'm not saying a tax, maybe a tax, uh, maybe punitory regulation, just make it costly for companies to continue treating us this way. But I don't know, I'm kind of at a loss. What, what, what do you think we can do to address this? Great point. So that's also a takeaway I felt as well is just like when you read this article, you're like, wow, there's there's no point. Like, why even try? They have all this data on me. They have my smartphone GPS logs, everything I've searched for on the Internet. They've tied all this stuff going back. And I mean, I've been using the Internet since like 95. You know, I've had accounts created for over 20 years. So to imagine my entire life, well, a good two thirds of it is just in the hands of Experian and all these other companies is it is very defeatist. So there's a way to do it better. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you can't just have the companies. So we're just going to supposed we're supposed to just sit here and trust that the companies are, are actually going to have our best interest in mind when they're earning record profits off of the data it's it's really tough so i think the things we've been talking about in terms of the data exchange data cooperatives having governance models where we get to choose how our data is being used and then being uh, compensated for it is is a solution i want to take ruben up he's in the queue and so let's get him up here because i know he's going to have good thoughts on this hey ruben, hey, ruben. Hey, Good. That's so good. Yeah, so uh, data privacy, super interesting, particularly as we go from a world that, uh, you know, is sort of structured on a lot of proprietary data sets and infrastructures to uh, ones that are a lot more, um, they're a lot less centralized, right? Um, yeah, and, which is a whole other conversation, but, but in terms of things that we can do today, um, there's... I've looked into it a reasonable amount in the last, um, you know, three, four years, uh, particularly as it applies to um, uh, personally identifiable information uh, in the states and how it interacts with certain laws that are expanding across various jurisdictions. Um, is anybody, are either of you familiar with the, um, the C C CPPA, California Privacy Protection Act? Yeah, we, we actually uh, talked about it a little bit last week. Oh, awesome. Uh, so you'll be familiar with the right to know and the right to uh, opt out and so on and so forth. Um, were you also familiar with the lack of uh, uh, the private right of action? Did that come up? It did not. Um, no, maybe you can uh, clarify. Sure. So um, if I take your stuff, let's say you have an ice cream and I take your ice cream, um, you can go to a court of law in the States and say, Ruben took my ice cream. Here's a picture of me with the ice cream. Here's a picture of Ruben with the ice cream and me looking sad, et cetera, et cetera, right? 
Um, and you can do that because you have standing as the injured party. You become the plaintiff, I become the defendant, and everything sort of, you know, unfolds accordingly. Uh, however, there are some rights, uh, or there are some sort of uh, infringements of rights where there is no private right of action. That is, you as an individual, even though you've been injured, you can't sue the relevant party. Um, you have to ask somebody to do it for you. And in this case, and a lot of governments uh, and a lot of um, countries work this way, uh, particularly when it comes to suing the government, uh, go figure. Um, but yeah, one of the sort of hardest lobbies um, that we saw in California um, was a number of very large technology companies basically saying, look, um, if we open the door up to the class action plaintiff's bar, it's going to be it's going to be a nightmare for all these scrappy small businesses. Obviously, we're going to be fine because we're giant tech companies. We can afford to fight those things. But what you really want to look at was for the little guy. No, 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 no. Don't don't let anybody sue us. Instead, you should you should sue us. You're the government. You're you're the boss. So I tell you what, we'll we'll totally support this bill. But I really think you should remove the private right of action so that effectively, the only person that can uh, pursue, um, um, you know a case for a CPBA is the attorney general of California who broadly has about the capacity to pursue maybe two, three cases per year. When you look at the rest of their sort of, um, you know, um, the load that they have. So there, so there's, there's um, meaningful sort of infrastructural uh, issues there in terms of, bottlenecking enforcement into uh, an agency that just selects the resources to pursue it. However, um, one can see a world, in a world, uh, one can see a world where um, somebody made an app and that app had two buttons. And the first button said, who's selling my data? Maybe it cost a dollar to press the button. And the second button said, please stop selling my data. And when uh, somebody pressed the first button, they would agree to um, having a third party, maybe the owner of the app, um, to become the authorized agent for the purposes of filing right-to-know requests. And then that organization could automate hundreds and hundreds of emails uh, that are compliant and timely and sufficient notice uh, to the relevant data brokers um, for those curious as to how many people are selling your information, uh, whether without your consent or, or knowledge, you might choose to go to the Vermont Data Broker Registry, which is about 600. That's just the data brokers that are registered in the state of Vermont, which is not all of them. Um, but one can see, for example, let's say a thousand people join the app and they all press that button. Uh, and, and you sent a note to every data broker simultaneously? Well, you're probably looking at about somewhere between 5 and 10% of them capable of responding. Um, and that means 90% of 600 data brokers in this context, although I'm sure there's a lot more, multiplied by 1,000 users, multiplied by $800 statutory damages for a failure to respond in a timely fashion, you're looking at towards a billion dollars in liability being created overnight on behalf of the consumer. Now, I'm not sure that that would be sufficient to get the attorney general to do their job, but you could 
basically hand over exhibit A and put it on a big silver platter and send it to their office. And then you can maybe set up a website that said, here's how many um, CCPA violations there have been for these companies that have failed to respond in a timely and compliant fashion. Um, here's by sort of scope and volume of the specific parties as well. And here's how many days the AG has failed to act on this issue. And so the theme here is um, laws are powerful and that's cool. But if people lack the awareness of and access to um, those, those laws and how that affects them, um, and if the burden of exercising them is um, is a net negative on a per person basis, then they don't really they don't really matter, right? Uh, and so, yeah, trick is how can we make it easier? Not not only for people to be aware of their uh, rights, but how to access them as well. Yeah, completely love it, love it, Ruben. I mean, let's let's build it. So, I mean, everything you just talked about is is definitely. I mean, let's let's do it. Let's get it funded and, and build it. Yeah, yeah no, 100%. Uh, like we talked about last week when this came up, uh, giving I mean, everything you just said, it's like the author of that article said is like dropping users into a sea in the middle of a storm. The tools you're talking about would allow them to navigate that storm without drowning them. So no, I, I'm, I would love to see tools like that more. Yeah, we'll definitely plan a follow-up session and and spitball a lot more of this we do have to wrap up but thanks for for chiming in ruben jake always good to chat with you every morning so maybe we'll see you tomorrow morning you bet yep awesome take it easy all right see you bud